Well, let's pray together this morning. Father, as we go into this time of the proclamation of your word, I pray that you would meet us, God, that you would be here in our midst. And by that I mean in our midst here in this worship center as I proclaim the word and in our homes and maybe other locations as uh, people are receiving this word in this interesting and unique day that we're living in. We pray, God, that you would meet us and be with us as individual family units and as individuals, some who may be very lonely at this time, even at this hour, as they watch uh, this, uh, this worship time. I pray for, for them, Lord. I pray that your presence would be with them, that they might know you, Lord God. I pray for the people of Life Point Church, God, that as we go through this time, that you would bind our hearts and knit our hearts together. Lord, that we remember who we are and that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, even though we're not uh, relating to one another physically, Lord God, that that we are together spiritually and that you are in our midst. And so I pray, God, that that in this time you might work uniquely in this local body of Christ. And God, I would pray that for the other bodies of Christ, the local bodies of Christ here in Indianapolis and abroad as well. Uh, Lord, uh, I pray that your spirit would, would move uniquely in this time to bind the church of Jesus Christ together. And Lord, God, when we are able to come back together and to rejoice in that, whatever that looks like, that you would, you would God, prepare us for that time of rejoicing as we return uh, to be with one another physically again, corporately again. But in the meantime, Lord, now we pray for an outpouring of your spirit and the proclamation of your word. I pray, Lord, that you would be with our missionaries as they continue their tasks, both at home and abroad, as they they strive to bring the gospel message of Jesus Christ to the nations. Lord, I pray for some of our own missionaries right here in Indianapolis who are struggling, uh, who have uh, situations in families or uh, other uh, scenarios in their lives that are making things difficult right now. I pray for them. I ask you to minister to them Lord God, I think of the Krumenockers today. I think of the Santos family today. And I pray, God, that you would minister to them and that you would pour out your blessing upon them and that you would encourage them and and strengthen them, Lord God. And certainly, Father, we have multiple other missionaries that we care for and serve. And many of them are abroad on the field today. And, And so I pray for them and ask you to minister to them and be gracious to them as well, Lord God. Strengthen, empower them, encourage them, embolden them, Lord God, and, and help them as they navigate these days uh, from, from afar, from abroad. So Lord, we commend ourselves to you now. We commit ourselves to you in the proclamation of your word and uh, ask God that you would meet us now in this text from Genesis chapter 6. I pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, today we're going to tackle one of the more difficult texts in all of the Old Testament, maybe one of the more difficult texts in all of Scripture uh, combined. And we find today that questions related to the creation days, to the age of the earth, to, to the whole story of the flood, how, how, uh, how far did the, did the flood reach, uh, some of these uh, pertinent and important questions, they're not the most difficult questions uh, of Genesis chapter 1 through, through chapter 12. There are other difficult questions, and this is certainly one of them. This text from Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And so I want to focus in on this text today and try to answer some questions as best we can, but also, as always, to tie it in 
to the gospel and to tie it into as much as we can application to our own lives uh, today. And so this passage today from Genesis chapter 6 where we find ourselves is perplexing not only because of the concepts that it presents, but also because the original Hebrew there, or what we would call the Hebrew idiom, is really difficult to translate as well. And so one thing that we can be fairly certain about here is this. Moses' original audience, they knew what was going on. They knew about the Nephilim. They, knew, they, they understood that there, were, uh, that there were some interesting things that had taken place. And um, Moses doesn't go into a lot of detail uh, to describe it because, again, we assume his original audience already knows these things. The reality is that the understanding of who the sons of God were in Genesis 6 and and, and who the Nephilim were and what this this strange union was all about, uh, that was lost to the Jewish people over time. And and we, we know that because by the time you get to the 4th, 3rd centuries B.C.s, you, you have Jewish scholars commenting on this text and other texts as well and, and speculating about them and giving uh, some answers, or at least the answers that they think uh, pertained to the, pertaining to these texts. And so by the, by the 4th, 5th centuries B.C., 3rd century B.C., much of this information has been lost even to the Jewish community as well. Now, of course, we find ourselves even more distant from that time, and we continue to struggle with these texts. But struggle with them, nevertheless, we, we, we address these texts. And so we find ourselves today in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, as we begin to move towards the flood narrative, the storyline of Noah and the great flood. We have We've been introduced to Noah, we've been introduced to him as a, as a man who lived 500 years and then had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. And so we, we are now at a point where we're going to move from that quick introduction of who Noah is to, to a storyline that will kind of give us an explanation as to why this flood comes about at all. And so we'll, we'll talk more about the flood, obviously, next week. So let's read this text from Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, and then I'm going to do my very best uh, to break it down for us today. Let's stand in your homes or wherever you may be as, as we read this text today. Genesis chapter 6, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for, his, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, men of renown. And so here's this interesting text. And and I wonder, do you ever find yourselves, like, like I do at times, after reading the passage of Scripture and simply saying, what? I mean, what, did that text, what is that text saying? What does it mean? What is it portraying to us? There are texts like that, both in the Old and New Testament, where we read them and just say, what was that all about? What, do, what are we reading? What, what's actually taking place here? And this certainly qualifies as one of those texts. 
It is a mystery. It remains a mystery for us. Now, I use that term quite a bit, I think, in my preaching as I look back over that. And I've tried to, to explain uh, to you, the, the, the people of LifePoint, that in my 40 years of knowing Christ, I've become more um, comfortable with mystery. I've become more comfortable with the idea of reading a text like this and saying, that's a head-scratcher. And I don't know exactly what's taking place there. Now, I'm also the type of person who's going to go to, to commentaries and ask people and, and, and begin to, to, to seek answers. But I'm, I'm, I'm more and more comfortable now with this reality that God's not going to give me the answer to everything. There are some things I'm just not going to know. And I've got to tell you out of the gate here, I'm going to tell you what my thoughts are on this text, but I am not going to tell you that I think I have the answer to this text. This is a mystery, and, and I don't want to just leave it at that and say, well, we won't talk about it because it's a mystery, because if we did that, we'd have to do that multiple times in our preaching and in the texts of Scripture that we go through. So I do want to address it, but it is indeed a mystery. So let's look at this text this morning, and first, we see that there is this obvious downward spiral that is taking place. In your message notes, I wrote down, and down we down, and down and down we go. We're just moving down this spiral as humanity. There is, I think, uh, an obvious conclusion from our text today, and that is this. With the multiplication of human beings comes the multiplication of sin. With the multiplication of human beings comes the multiplication of sin. More fallen people in one general location leads to more sin generally. That seems to be the case both biblically and I think even in our own experience as well. One need only look to human urban centers to see this reality played out. Move to the urban centers. It's not like in rural areas there is no sin. But when we move to the urban centers, both biblically and in our own experience, we find sin multiplied. We, sin that, we see that sin is more general as people come together and, and gather together in certain locations. And so more fallen people in general, one general location leads to more sin or fallenness generally. I've told this story before when we were all able to gather together uh, of my time in college. Uh, I, I worked as a resident assistant, and I was assigned to a place called Carmen Hall at Eastern Illinois University. And there, uh, I was an RA. I was a resident assistant in charge of a floor of 50 men. And uh, that floor was, was in the midst of a two towers of buildings that housed a thousand freshmen, nine stories of men and ten stories of women. And I think I said when I talked about this some months ago, maybe years ago, I don't recall now, but whoever came up with this concept really probably ought to be drawn and quartered. I mean, it's just a bad idea of taking a thousand freshmen and putting them in one place. Whoever sat at a table at one point and said, what are we going to do with all this freshman class? I've got an idea. Let's put them all in one place, men and women together, all these freshmen. But that's where I was an RA, and eventually I became a hall director there as well for a few years and, and, and directed all of these, these RAs, 20-some-odd RAs overseeing these, these uh, floors of, of men and women. And i got to tell you, essentially from Thursday night through Saturday night, it was just an area of great debauchery and sexual licentiousness and rudeness and crudeness it's not that these were horrible individual human beings, but when you crammed them all together, uh, these young men and women who were first time away, most of them from home, 
It, we ran into a lot of depravity, a lot of trouble. Now, I will say that I was also able to, to host and lead in an apartment there uh, a really wonderful Bible study, inductive Bible study, uh, introducing uh, people to, to the Gospel of John, and uh, very, very productive and very, very fruitful. But it was in the midst of, of a, lot of, a lot of depravity. And so putting a lot of people together uh, creates a situation where you have a lot of, of fallen human beings collectively finding out new ways uh, to produce more depravity. And that seems to be the case here in Genesis chapter 6. Man begins to multiply on the face of the earth. Daughters are born to them. Sons and daughters are born to them. And then we begin to see sin and depravity begin its downward its downward spiral. And so in the Genesis narrative, one clear outcome of this rapid multiplication of humanity was this concept of dominance and power grabbing, essentially here, at least according to the storyline, by dominant men or men dominated by demons. It is these powerful men who are grabbing more, more power. Verse 2 tells us that the sons of God saw women and they took the ones that they found attractive and they took as many as they wanted. They found them attractive and they decided, I want them and I'm going to take as many as I choose. Now, sons of God is a difficult phrase to interpret here in the original Hebrew. We're not exactly sure what Moses is alluding to here with this concept. But don't get sidetracked, at least not yet, by that text. Because took here is a key word. The idea of taking is a key word here. Might makes right is essentially what's occurring here. The strong are, are, are dominating the weak, and, and it is women who suffer the most here in this narrative, which has really been the storyline throughout all of human history. It is women who, who tend to suffer most when men begin to dominate, right? All we need to do is go back to the Genesis account in Genesis 3, and when we see the fall, and we see that, that um, God's word to Eve is that and, and, to, and to women in general, is that there will be a propensity of man now to dominate you. And that we see happening already here in Genesis chapter 6. These powerful men, these sons of God, see attractive women and they say, I'll take them and I'll take as many as I want. Notice here too, don't forget this or don't miss this, I suppose I should say, that how this repetition seems to be, be working. If you go back to Genesis 3, you saw that Eve saw the fruit, that it was good to eat or it was pleasing to the eye. And what did she do? She took it, right? She saw it. It was good to her. She took it. And that's exactly what these sons of God are doing. They see, right? They see these women. They are attractive to them. They are good and so they take them. This is the story of sin. This is our story as well. This is my story and your story, right? When we move against God, it's usually in that, in that sequence. We see it. It's good for us. We take it. And this leads to this downward spiral of sin individually, I think, and corporately here as it's related to us in Genesis chapter 6. God's response here in verse 3 to this depravity is to limit the lifespan of humanity to 120 years. Now, that's my take on this. It's not just mine. 
but it is the take that, that I think makes the most sense of this text. There are some others who will say linguistically it's also possible, maybe even preferable, to see here that what God is saying, that uh, because of this depravity, because of this downward spiral of sin, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give humankind another 120 years. Or in other words, there will be 120 years and then the flood. Now, certainly that is possible I think the context here lends itself more to the idea that God is saying, I'm not going to contend with this forever. So, so these long lifespans are now going to be reduced down to a maximum of, of a, a maximum of 120 years. And people will say, well, that's just not, it's not how it happened because we'll see even after the flood that some will live beyond 120 years. And I would say that is true. We also see that God tells Adam, that when or if they take of this fruit uh, in the garden that is forbidden, they will surely die. Now, certainly I think there's a spiritual aspect to that, but it seems like there's a physical aspect to that as well. And yet when they take and eat of it, they don't die immediately. There is a spiritual transformation that takes place, and ultimately they're going to experience death, which we talked about last week with this reoccurring theme in Genesis chapter 5, and then they died, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died. So certainly that is true, but I do think that what we, what we see here is God saying, here's a general principle. We're reducing lifespans. Lifespans are, are, are going to be narrowed down. Now, I think that's the best take on this text. It may not be the correct one. There may be, there may be a different idea here that's being portrayed that's the correct one, or it may be that he is saying 120 more years until the flood we don't know for sure, but I think context would tell us that the best take here is that he's simply saying 120 years is going to be the lifespan, this general concept of a lifespan for human beings because God's not going to contend with this type of spy, downward spiral, this type of depravity on and on and on and on with men and women living, living these, these enormous lifespans uh, on the face of the earth. Look, what, what we can say is that Sin is real here. Sin is real. And we're seeing the, 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 the outplay of sin. What is happening? This dominance by people. This, this uh, autonomy. This taking things for themselves. And we just have to realize if we stop for a minute and step back, friends, that this is true in the 21st century. It is true for us individually as well. It reminds me of uh, one of my uh, favorite poems by Helen McDowell um, called Once I Prayed. And she says, once I prayed, I knew not what I said. Show me myself, O Lord. Alas, I did not dread the hideous sight, which now I shudder to behold, because I knew not self aright. And I was led in answer to this prayer, step by step to see my wretched heart laid bare, then I prayed, <clears throat> stay, Lord, I cannot bear this sight. And pityingly, his hand was stayed. His hand was stayed. Friends, if we were to ask God, show me who I am, what would we see? What would we see? What would we really see? I think we'd see a lot of what we see in Genesis chapter 6. I think we would see that we're really no different than these, than these people, uh, these, uh, these what we call antediluvian people prior to the flood, these, these human beings who lived real lives 
at that day and age, I think we'd see that there is much that we have in common with them. The descent of humankind was picking up speed, and it was picking up speed, it seems, rapidly, although we don't know how much time is eclipsing here. The scriptures do not tell us. It's silent on this. Are we just to take all these ages that have been laid out in Genesis 5 in this genealogy of some sort that tells about the lives of these important uh, uh, men in particular, and, and are we just to, to add them all together and say that's how many years t- uh, transpired? Or are we to see that this may be taking place over many, many, many years, and these are just snippets of genealogies that we see in other places in in genealogies in the Bible? And the answer is we just don't know. There are some very fine scholars who have speculated that there was far more history before the flood, human history, than there has been after the flood. And the reality is I just have to say I don't know about that. I don't know how much time is transpiring here because the scriptures are not telling us how much time is transpiring. But it does seem to portray the, the rapid increase of sin upon the earth along with the multiplying of, of human births and human beings uh, being, uh, uh, the, the earth being peopled by fallen human beings. So I think that's kind of how we move into this text here in Genesis chapter 6. So now for the question of the hour. Now for the question of the hour. Who were these guys? Who were they? Who, who were these sons of God? Who were these Nephilim? It says the Nephilim, verses 4 through 6, were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, there's an interesting phrase, and also afterward. After what? After the flood? After Moses' description of this? We don't know exactly what he's saying here. And when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men of, who were of old, the men of renown. Uh, again, I've already said this, a perplexing text here. One thing I think we have to avoid here is, is an undue speculation in areas where the scriptures don't give us warrant to do that. An overactive imagination that creates scenarios that that quite frankly, the scriptures are just silent on. We don't have direct answers, and so that we need to be very, very careful here. We need to tread lightly. We need to give grace to others who have different viewpoints from this. Now, again, some viewpoints, particularly in passages like this, they just they become wacky. They become very, very strange and silly. But there are some very, very real uh, ideas that come out of this text, and we need to be gracious to one another and not say, well, my idea must be the right one, because we simply do not have enough information to do that. Paul warns Timothy in 1 Timothy as he tells him, look, here's essentially why I left you in Ephesus, Timothy. Here's what I want you to do in 1 Timothy 1.4. He says, I want you to, to tell people not to devote themselves to myths and to endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship of God, which is by faith. It seems to be what he's saying to Timothy is people are given over to these, particularly, I think, without trying to be intentionally derogatory of the people of that day and age or the Jewish people of that day and age, these these Jewish myths, these genealogies. We see genealogies in Scripture. They're meaningful for the Jewish people, but even good things can be corrupted. And it seems like that the the Jews, we see some of this even from extra-biblical literature, were piling upon uh, uh, genealogies, other genealogies, and filling in gaps and, and, and putting together these hierarchies of angels and names and other kind of things that were taking place that it seems like what Paul is saying to Timothy is, you've got to tell these people to back off of that. We don't want to spend all of our time in these 
undo speculations. In 1 Timothy 4, 7, he reminds Timothy, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Put aside these irreverent myths of, of these angels and demons and, and, and these long histories, these myths. Some translations call it old wives' tales. And so we want to be careful about let, Let's not do what Paul has warned us strongly against doing. At the same time, as I said as I began the text today, or this message today, here we are in Genesis chapter 6. We're in the text. We need to deal with the text as best we can without moving off into strange, into strange theories. So here we go. Three main theories onto, uh, as to who were these sons of God. And I'm going to move through this relatively quickly here this morning. Number one, they were the righteous line of Seth who intermarried with the sinful line of Cain. Right? They're all human beings. It's the righteous line of Seth, and they're intermarrying with the sinful line of Cain. Or in other words, now we have um, essentially what we would say in the parlance of today, Christians marrying non-Christians. Now, we wouldn't use that terminology then, but just so we kind of get a, a, an idea of what we're talking about here. Righteous people who are of God uh, intermarrying with non-righteous people, and God is displeased with that. The problem here, and I think uh, the, the fatal flaw to this viewpoint, is that all the masculinity is on one side and all the femininity is on another side. Or in other words, the sons of God, they're the good guys and they all seem to be guys. And, and, and the daughters of men, the line of Cain, they all seem to be women and they all seem to be problematic. Now, it's not that the text necessarily says that, but it, there's a, an implication there. And so I think it's a fatal flaw to that viewpoint. I'm not saying it can't be true, but, but I think it's a fatal flaw to that viewpoint. I don't think we're just talking about righteous people marrying unrighteous people. Number one, we don't generally get the sense that when, when Christians marry non-Christians, that oftentimes we get giants that come as a result of that union. And, and, and I know some people would say, well, we're not even talking about giants in this text. So, so wow, there's just a lot here to talk about, right? But I will simply say that that's one theory, and it's one theory that I don't think probably holds as much water uh, uh, as, as these other theories. The second theory is this. The sons of God were, were kings and great leaders. They're called sons of God because they're mighty. They are kings, they're leaders, they're princes of the people. And these, these kings and these great leaders are following Lamech, the seventh in the line of Adam from Cain, not Lamech in Seth's line. I know that can get a little confusing. I fielded a couple of emails this week from people saying, which Lamech are we talking about here? And which Enoch are we talking about here? Because there are some interchanging of names. That, that these, these princes or these kings are following Lamech, the, the evil Lamech, seventh in the line of Adam and Cain's line in the sin of polygamy, right? They're taking as many men, women as they want as Lamech did. He takes for himself two wives and then he has this boastful uh, song that Pastor Nate walked us through a couple of weeks ago. So here we have these, these great mighty men, these princes and kings, and they're saying, look, we've got the power. Again, might makes right. I see these women. They're attractive to me. I'm going to take as many of them as I want. And now we have polygamy entering into the equation which God never ordained and never, never called for. It's certainly possible linguistically. I think this uh, is, is, uh, has less strength to it than the third theory, although I don't know that it has any what I would call fatal flaws to it. So... One, one theory that, that what we're talking about here is just, again, human beings who are, who are uh, established as kings 
and princes and are doing what they want to do. The third theory is this, and I hear I mean main theories. There's a lot of other theories that are out there. The third theory is this. They were gods, small g. They were, they were, they were fallen angels who left their proper dwelling place in heaven and had sexual relations with human women. And again, we read that, and if we, if we believe that, then we say, what? What's happening here? Celestial beings and human beings, and they're, and they're, they're, they're coming together and, and having children that are these giants and these great, these great warriors. And some would say, well, but, but can angels cohabit uh, with, with women? Can they, can they cohabitate in such a way that offspring would be born? Doesn't Jesus seem to say no to that in Mark chapter 12 when he says that when we as human beings are in the resurrection, we will not be married or given in marriage. We'll be like the angels in heaven. And some people say, well, what Jesus is saying there is that there's no possibility for physical union in the resurrected state. But I think a closer reading of Mark 12 would tell us that's not what Jesus is saying. That's not even the context of what he's saying necessarily. He's talking here about, about what's going to be, what it's going to be like in glory, in the resurrected state. And in the resurrected state, we're not going to have to be worried about who we were married to, whether we we're married to more than one person or one person on earth. It doesn't mean we're going to forget about them and that we don't care about them. There, there's none of that in Mark 12. It does seem to be saying that Jesus is saying that, that our existence, our physical existence in heaven will be different in some ways than it is here. There will be some uh, similarities, but there will be some differences as well. He doesn't, he doesn't speculate or indicate anything about relationships between angels and, and human beings. <clears throat> so I think it is at least possible that what we have here is celestial beings, fallen angels, who are, who are um, cohabitating with women and, and bringing about a line, a, a type of person. Maybe not a new race of people, <clears throat> but a type of people. Maybe it's demons possessing men. Maybe these, these fallen angels are possessing human men and then causing them or being kind of the, the stimulus or the... the, the uh, what leads these men <clears throat> into these sinful activities. And again, we simply don't know here. There's something unique that's taking place here. I think the text would tell us there's something unique taking place here. I think uh, other places in the scriptures would tell us something unique has taken place and did take place at that time. Uh, I think it is possible that, that, that demonic spirits are possessing human men in this situation uh, the cravings that demons seem to have for a human body that is, I think, prevalent in the gospel accounts of Jesus' ministry with so many of these demoniacs coming to Jesus and Jesus casting out so many demons. We see it even uh, less frequently, but in the New Testament narrative in the book of Acts as well. I, I think it's less frequent because I think it's a unique time in the life and ministry of Jesus. That's my own opinion about that. But, <clears throat> but we do see in the gospel accounts that, that demons seem to have a desire to possess human bodies. They're not, they're not haunting houses. Uh, they're, they're not inhabiting animals, although we do see them briefly in Mark 5 in the, in the herd of pigs, but they are quickly uh, extinguished. So I think there is something <clears throat> unique that is taking place here. Something unique that is taking place here. Now, 
the Jewish people thought something was unique was taking place here as well. And we see that in what we call the, the pseudepigrapha. These are, these are uh, false graphs. These are false writings or are attrib- uh, writings that were attributed to people that they prob- who probably didn't write them. And I don't have time to go into all of that. Some of you will know what, what I mean when I say the pseudepigrapha. You can also look it up online. But these are non-canonical books that uh, were important to, to the Jewish people. And even in the early church were, were read, um, we assume, even by Christians as well. So, so pseudepigrapha, doesn't, they're false, but they're not false as if naturally sinful to read these writings. Let me just read to you from the book of Enoch, which Jude, uh, in, in the canonical letter of Jude, uh, will refer to the book of Enoch. He doesn't refer to it as if it's canon, as if it's scripture, but he does refer to it as part of the Jewish uh, corpus of literature. And so this is not the Bible. Let me be clear about this. This is not the Bible. But this is part of the Jewish pseudepigrapha, and it's called the book of Enoch. And listen to what it says. It came to pass that when the children of men had multiplied, that in those days were born unto them beautifully attractive daughters. And the angels, the children of heaven, saw and lusted after them, and said to one another, Come, let us choose us wives from among the children of men, and beget us children. And, and Simjaza, who was their leader, said unto them, I fear ye will not indeed agree to this deed, and I alone shall have to pay the penalty of this great sin. And they all answered him and said, Let us all swear an oath, and all bind ourselves by mutual imprecations, not to abandon this plan, but to do this thing. Then swear they all together and bound themselves by mutual imprecations upon it. And they were in all 200 who descended in the days of Jared on the mount of the summit of Mount Hermon. And they called it Mount Hermon because they had sworn and bound themselves by mutual imprecations upon that mount. Now, again, one more time, let me emphasize this. I'm not reading from the Bible there. I'm reading from a pseudepigraphal work uh, called the book of Enoch. But it does appear that, that uh, Jude was familiar with this, that, that Peter was familiar with this. We see some allusion to it in 2 Peter as well. Now, to the scriptures, to Jude in the New Testament, verses 5 and 7. This is scripture. This is the word of God here. And Jude says this. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt. That's an interesting text there. Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Again, a perplexing text there from Jude. He seems to be alluding to this concept that we see in the book of Enoch. But more importantly, I think it seems that he's alluding to what's taking place here in Genesis chapter 6. Now again, let me just say, I could be wrong about this. Other scholars could be wrong about this. But I think this is what Jude is referring to. These angelic beings abandon their natural habitation. Or in other words, elect angels who did not sin, they didn't abandon their natural positions. 
It doesn't say they couldn't have. It says we assume they didn't, but some did. Now, whether it was 200 or 200,000, we don't know. The book of Enoch puts it at 200 who, who actually did this particular deed, it appears, who decided they were going to lust after human women and go after them. And so you have a really strange kind of amalgamation of these texts, and we take them all together, and we try to figure out what's going on. And the reality is, as I said before, and I'll say again, there's a mystery here, but I think the best interpretation or the best application of this text is simply that what we have here are fallen angels who leave their dwelling place, who go above and beyond their fallenness, who become presumptuous, and they go and they cohabitate with, with women, and they bring about a, a type of, of human being who is unique, at least unique for that time. So, for what it's worth, that's where, I, that's where I'm at on this text. At least today, that's where I'm at on this text. Maybe with more study or with somebody talking to me, they may be able to convince me that that view is probably not the, the best view. But based on my research and study, I think that's the best take on this. Although it's also the strangest take on this. And I don't have explanations of celestial beings and human beings and how all that stuff works. But something very, very strange seems to be taking place here in this text. Now, who are the Nephilim then? Because some would say there's, there's no tie here between, between these sons of God and these daughters of, of man and the Nephilim, that, that there's a break here. Uh, in most uh, sentences in the Old Testament Hebrew, uh, they start with the word and. It's a strange phenomenon, but it's true. Most Old Testament texts in Hebrew start with the word and. This one does not. There is a clear break here at verse 4. It's not and the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. It is the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. There's a break here, and there's a break as well there at the end of verse um, 4. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So it could be that that break is there for a reason. It does seem to me like these are all tied in together. And so, who were the Nephilim? Well, a few theories about that as well. Just two I'm going to lay out for you. Number one. They were what the Greeks called titans. They were the offspring of gods and human beings. I've just told you, I think this is probably the best way to look at this, although I can't explain it. But this is what the text, I think, seems to be saying. This is the offspring of, of demon, demonic celestial beings, what, what we see sometimes in the Old Testament called gods, small g, and, and human beings. Or... They're just really big human dudes, just really big human guys that nobody wants to fight. Nobody wants to go up against these guys. They're the great warriors of the past. Or they're both. They are the, the, the result of this union between celestial beings and human women, and they are giants. They're, they're, they're big uh, they're, they're fearsome in battle. They're men of renown. They, they are the kind of people you do not want to meet in a dark alley. Uh, they're the people that you're afraid of when you go into battle. We see some of that in Numbers chapter 13 when the spies spy out the promised land. You remember they come back and 10 of them give a negative report. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, give a positive report. But the negative report is simply this. We went in there and we saw these people and we were like grasshoppers in their eyes. We saw them, the sons of Anak, the Anakites are in there. And, and, they, and they do this, I think, to scare the people. We saw giants in the land. 
And then when Caleb and Joshua settle the people down and say, no, 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 we can take this land. It's a good land. We got to go take this land. Then these other 10 spies come back and now they change the language a bit and they say, we saw Nephilim there. We saw the Nephilim there. And, and, and it, 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 it causes fear in the hearts of the people. I don't think it's because they really saw Nephilim there. I don't think the Nephilim are there. I think they were destroyed in the flood. But I think the name and the concept is still there. And so they say, well, if you're not afraid of giants, just natural giants, the, the Anakites, are you afraid of the Nephilim? Because we can always say we saw the Nephilim there too. So friends, again, I know I keep saying this, but this is a strange text. And I want to get here real soon now to some takeaway from this. But the reality is, is that these seem to have been uh, mighty, mighty warriors. And the, and, and the fact of the matter is, is look, if you're going to do, do battle with somebody, you want to do battle not with a giant, right? I mean, that just makes common sense. If someone came to me and said, look, Jim, you got to go toe-to-toe with somebody today. Here's your options. Here is a power forward in the NBA at 6 feet 9 and 270 pounds. You can go toe-to-toe with him, or you can go toe-to-toe with this guy who is the world record holder as a jockey who stands in at five foot one and 97 pounds. Now look, just the natural person is going to say, I'll go with the jockey, right? I'll take the jockey on one on one. This is just a natural inclination of the people. The giants scare them. And it seems to me like Moses is giving us some sort of an explanation, although I don't think he's telling us that these Nephilim make it through the flood. I don't think they do. I do think there are just human big people after the flood as well, just like there are human big people today. Go watch any live NFL football game or any live NBA basketball game, and most of us would say, those are some really big people. So there's a uniqueness here of this story that we can't quite get our, our minds around. But in any case, in any case, we see here not only depravity but presumptiveness. We see these these sons of God being very, very presumptuous, proudly overstepping God's boundaries. Whether it's demons or human beings, they are proudly stepping over God's boundaries. And friends, do we not see that in our world today? Do we not see that in our own lives? Proudly at times overstepping boundaries, overstepping the things that God has said do or don't do. But, but at times kind of saying, no, I'm my own man, I'm my own woman, I'm my own person, I'll do what I want to do. Things just haven't changed a whole lot in human history. We are, outside of Christ, doomed. We are depraved. We are sinful human beings. And we see it individually and we see it corporately as well. And we're beginning to see that story come about here So I think by virtue of its placement here in Genesis chapter 6, this incident recorded in our text today is obviously intended to introduce us into the flood story, into this flood narrative that's going to follow. We've already been introduced to some of the individuals in that. We've already been introduced to the individual sin that led to it, right? The individual sin of Adam, the individual sin of Eve, the individual sin of Cain, the individual sin of Lamech. Now we're seeing corporate sin. What happens when these individuals get together? It really gets bad. And I think we see that in our own world today as well. We see here the justification for the flood narrative, the justification for what God is about to do in this narrative, in the story of Genesis. And so 
What's the takeaway after all of this? What's the takeaway with the sons of God and the Nephilim and, and, and uh, some of this strange uh, celestial language and talk that I've, been, that I've been using here today? And if your question is, Pastor Jim, do you want me to believe that due to sin in the world, angels had sexual relations with women and begat giants? And my answer to that is, no, that's not what I'm asking you to believe. I'm telling you that's what I think is the best explanation for this text or the best explanation for uh, what this text is trying to relay to us. But I'm not asking you to believe it. What I'm asking you to believe, what I want you to believe, is that Jesus, the Son of God, became flesh. And he lived among us. And, and, and he was a perfect human being. And he died the, the death of a criminal. So that criminals like me and like you could have everlasting life. That there's hope and justification and, and eternal life in Jesus Christ. That's what I want you to believe Look, what you believe about Jesus is infinitely more important than what you believe about the Nephilim. It's not that that story in Genesis 6 that we just now went through is, ir is uh, ir irrelevant or has no purpose. It certainly has purpose. It is relevant. It, it, it pecues our curiosity, at least for most people. But it is not as important as what we believe about Jesus. Friends, there are, there are first and primary issues and there are secondary and tertiary issues in, in Scripture. And Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, although it's Scripture, it is part of the canon that we must believe. We don't always have to understand everything that we're reading. We don't always have to be able to put everything into neat places. So am I expecting you to believe what I believe about this text? No. What I want you to believe is that Jesus Christ, who was and is the Son of God, of the majesty of heaven, did take on flesh. Is that not a mystery? Is that not a profound mystery? He took on flesh. He lived among us. He died for our sanctification, for our salvation, for our justification. And that those of us who, who put our hope and faith in Christ will know life everlasting. That's what I want you to believe. The rest of this stuff was because it's right there in the text, and I'm doing my very best to help you to understand it, at least from my perspective on this. But it's not the big takeaway for today. Friends, things are truly bad. Sin is real. Humans are depraved. But we're not beyond salvation thanks to God and His grace and the work of His Son, Jesus Christ, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Our God is good. He is full of grace. He is full of patience. He is full of mercy. Sin is real. And our badness is real. But friends, our badness will never outdo God's goodness. It will never outdo God's goodness. I should at least finish that poem that I started that I told you that I liked so well, right? Once I prayed, I knew not what I said. Show me myself, O Lord, alas, I did not dread the hideous sight which now I shudder to behold, because I knew not self aright. And I was led in answer to this prayer, step by step to see my wretched heart laid bare. Then I prayed, stay, Lord, I cannot bear the sight. And pityingly, his hand was stayed. His hand was stayed. And now I pray, I know this prayer is right. Show me thyself, O Lord. Be to my soul the bright and morning star to shine upon the grave of self, 
and lead my heart from earth afar, from earth afar. Friends, let that be our prayer. Not show me who I am, God, but show me who you are. Not show me the answers to these riddles in the scriptures, but show me Jesus Christ. Show me Christ in his glory. Show me hope in Jesus Christ. Friends, I don't want you to believe what you might find as strange things in Genesis chapter 6. I want you to believe in Jesus Christ. I want you to put your hope in Jesus Christ. I want you to reject the corruption of this world that says, come with us, come with us, come with us, come with us. More more people makes more joy. More sin makes more happiness. It's a lie from the pit of hell. It's a lie, friends. Trust in God. Trust in God. Place your hope fully in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who took on flesh and dwelt among us. God, help us to place our hope and faith in Jesus Christ. God, if you desire to unravel these mysteries for some of us, then, then so be it, Lord God. But God, most important, I pray that you would help us to know your Son, Jesus Christ, and hope in Christ. God, that we would reject the depravity of our world, the depravity of our own hearts, and that we would cling to Jesus Christ, who is our hope, who is the author and the perfection of, of, of and perfecter, Lord, of our faith. God, I pray that you would do that for us today and for those who sat through this message and through the complexities of this text today. God, show us Jesus, I pray. And it's in his name that I ask you to do that, Lord. Amen.